Open Source is sponsored by listeners like you. Pitch in to keep the world's first podcast going strong. 15 years and counting. Find us at patreon.com slash radio open source. And thank you. I'm Christopher Leighton. This is Open Source. Think of the British Empire in its day as a colossal trading company with the world's number one navy to police its traffic in pretty much everything, including about three million slaves to North America in the 17th and 18th centuries. Also, a variety of notably addictive substances like opium and oil and sugar and tobacco. It thought of itself as a distinctively liberal empire, civilizing the people it exploited and everywhere spreading the language of Milton and Shakespeare. Free speech and the rule of law. That is the imperial line that our guest Carolyn Elkins set out to bury with the official records of a police state and its practice of terror that ruled half a billion people at Queen Victoria's Diamond Jubilee in 1897. Carolyn Elkins, this book is on fire. I don't know that I've ever read a scholarly volume like it, fueled by rage, and it instills rage in your readers from start to finish. This is your second volume, in a way. The untold story of Britain's gulag in Kenya won the Pulitzer Prize only six years ago, called Imperial Reckoning. And now we have Legacy of Violence. Carolyn, give us the broader scope, even the cliche, the sun never sets on the British Empire. And it was true. This is the largest empire in human history. The British Empire encompassed more than a quarter of the world's landmass at its height in the 20th century, 700 million subjects. And it spanned across the globe. Africa, South Asia, Latin America, Middle East, parts of Europe, places like Cyprus. And so to your point, the sun never set, absolutely. And I think it's important to understand the depth and breadth, the size of this empire, that it's unlike anything that we've ever seen before. So many examples of this story in so little time, in a way. Would you tell the story of Winston Churchill at the northwest frontier, up toward the Khyber Pass in 1897? What were they doing there? Churchill just epitomizes, in many ways, the story that I'm telling. He coins this term thinking imperially, and he's there at the pass because they have to lay claim and suppress those who are resisting in this territory. And Churchill is there, and he comes with scores and scores of others from the British military into India's northwest frontier to the Malkin Pass. And it's there that they have to, frankly, just annihilate the local population in order to, if you will, establish British control. They have some tribes on their side, and they're fighting others, right? Precisely. You know, I'm not going to get into all the sort of the intricacies on who's on what side, and because I think you're right to say that it's very difficult in some ways to always parse this out. But the bottom line is that the use of extraordinary force and violence in order to subdue those who are resisting British rule um, and taking over their territory was quite something. And Churchill is right in the thick of it. And he's both soldier and journalist, and he's writing back home prolifically. And he makes a point of telling his mother that he's witnessing things that really are quite inhumane, but he's not getting his hands dirty. And I think that's a very important point for us to keep in mind. Can I quote his incredible dispatches. I mean, this was a Nobel Prize writer before his life was over. This is 1897 in the Mamund Valley. He writes, we proceeded systematically, village by village, and we destroyed the houses, filled up the wells, blew down the towers, 
cut down the great shady trees, burned the crops, and broke the reservoirs in punitive devastation. So long as the villages were in the plain, this was quite easy. The tribesmen sat on the mountains and sullenly watched the destruction of their homes and means of livelihood. At the end of a fortnight, the valley was a desert, and honor was satisfied. I mean, it's chilling. A lot of this book is to show that these are not one-off occurrences. All empires are violent, right? I'm looking to demonstrate that, in fact, this is systematic. It's imbricated in the nature of British rule, mm. and it stretches across time and space. So the Northwest frontier, as chilling as it is, was by no means exceptional. Yeah, it could remind you of Putin in Ukraine. It could remind you of the United States in Iraq or Vietnam. Absolutely. There's something even bigger than the Brits in all of this. Do we know what that is, that imperial impulse? You know, when we think about the history of man has been more often than not organized by empire. Nation state is a reasonably new phenomenon. And so this impulse to expand, this impulse to acquire more territory, to acquire more influence, to acquire more control, for a variety of reasons. But this is typical of human behavior and the nature in which states, if you will, and political systems were organized for centuries. In your book, in the story of the Brits in India, in the 20th century, World War I time, there was the massacre at Amritsar in the Punjab, it's a Sikh holy city at what is now the border between India and Pakistan. And in 1919, Spring Festival, it's market time for thousands of Muslims and Sikhs and Hindus and a British general who wants to assert the upper hand. 15,000 unarmed civilians have gathered in a seven-acre park in the city. And General Reginald Dyer orders his men to fire on the crowd. And they do. More than a thousand rounds, point blank. 400 people dead in 10 minutes. That was portrayed famously as being exceptional. Was it really? <laughs> no, it was not. But I think your question and the fact that they portrayed it as, as exceptional, and there's an enormous debate in Parliament over this. And it was during that debate, if we come back and use our through line of Churchill, where he's very clever. Because what happens is an outrage, right? And one can't excuse this other than to accept that this is part and parcel of the way in which the British Empire did business. So Churchill gets into Parliament and basically sacrifices Dyer for the sake of the empire. That, in fact, he was exceptional, that this sort of thing doesn't happen. But, of course, it happened all the time. It's a very clever strategic move. This idea of exceptionalism and how we understand violence, and in this case in the British Empire, that for so long it was seen as exceptional is not a mistake. It's because the mm. narrative groundwork had been laid for this for generations, and Churchill would be one example of that. Yeah, the mother, in a way, a turning point for the British in India had been the so-called Sepoy Mutiny, 1857, hired Indian troops in the British Army, but they rebelled. They didn't like the fact that their bullets were greased by pork fat. That was one of the things that stirred it up. But in any event, it was remembered now for the incredibly gruesome punishment by the Brits of the rebels. They always said the rebels were shot out of cannons. I never could picture that until your book. They were tied to the mouth of cannons, which were then fired, and the bodies were just blown to bits. Mm -hmm. 
And the Brits, thank goodness, I mean, never quite recovered in India. But it also brought out the naked brutality of their occupation. Absolutely. 1857 becomes a turning point in India and back at home in Britain. And it's a turning point in part. It was called the Red Year, 1857-1858. And it's portrayed back at home as what happens when, however you want to phrase it, too much too soon, this notion of a civilizing mission of bringing brown people along to be like us, that they will never be like us. And this is what happens when we go down that road. And of course, at that point, it was still being run by the East India Company, and it officially becomes the Raj. India becomes part of the British Empire as a political entity. And, you know, from that point forward, and certainly there had been other moments prior to 1857, but it becomes a history of organized resistance, a history of divisiveness within the subcontinent. And at the same time, India is the jewel in Britain's imperial crown. And so this tension that eventually, of course, explodes later on during the interwar years and right up until the Second World War. And famously, we know Gandhi and others are detained more often than not. But it really does become a crucial moment in our story about the ways in which Britain's back at home government colonial officials understood the use of violence and the justification for it because of the kind of, as they saw it, savagery that had started with the Indians during the 1857 rebellion and therefore justifying their own reciprocal violence, i.e. the shooting out of cannons of individuals in the most horrific of ways. You make a point of not leaving the details to our imagination as to exactly what that iron fist was doing and the scars it left. You're right. The violence the empire inflicted was not abstract. It took the form of electric shock, fecal and water torture, castration, forced hard labor, sodomy with broken bottles and vermin, forced marches through landmines, shin screwing, not quite sure what that is, fingernail extraction, and public execution. Failure to confront these practices diminishes the raw lived experience in the empire and the legacy they left behind. It takes your breath away. My view is in order to understand the nature of the violence, the impact it had at the time and on lived experiences and then the legacies it left behind, that we need to look at it head on. We need to feel it. We need to experience it. It's in no way meant to exploit the horrific circumstances that individuals endured, but by not looking at it, by not centering state-directed violence, and to do it in, in such a way that the reader or the listener truly understands the gravity, the significance of what we're talking about. In the absence of that, it's an academic conversation, right? It's just we're talking about it in the abstract, and that does no justice whatsoever to the historical record. The legacy is complex because a lot of it was left to the Indians, for example, who took up the government in their own country eventually. But a lot of the legacy comes to us. There's no question that we're the inheritors of that empire, and it shows. Absolutely. If we think about the connection between, of course, the, the British and the American empires, for the United States, there's every reason why Vietnam and strategic Hamlet looks just like what was happening in Malaya and in Kenya and elsewhere. Yeah. And it's because there was a British mission under Sir Robert Thompson who had served in Malaya. He was a hero of Robert Kennedy's. Yep. This is how we were going to pacify Vietnam. Yep. Robert Thompson specifically. Yep, exactly. He becomes a chief advisor to American administrations. You know, obviously we see Strategic Hamlet, which was an abject failure. 
And in part, it's a failure for all kinds of reasons. Thompson has to say, well, the Americans just didn't get it right. Well, what he meant by that was the Americans just weren't violent enough. <laughs> and, and not mm. to say we didn't have our issues. But and then if we also fast forward in time to Afghanistan and Iraq, we were basing our policies. The Petraeus report is based upon the, quote unquote, success of hearts and minds in Malaya, which, of course, is a complete fiction. So when we think about the handoff and the significance of these legacies of violence all the way down to the present day, it goes beyond mm. just post-colonial nations in the former British Empire. It really goes to much broader landscape. And I think that's something we really need to be thinking critically about so that we think about and can imagine a different way going forward in the future. Coming up, the making of a mindset in the fusion of nation, empire, and monarchy. This is Open Source. The Harvard historian Carolyn Elkins. She is turning the story of the British Empire inside out for today. Her title is Legacy of Violence. Speak, please, of the imperial mindset in your reading of the Brits. Imperialism is contained in every citizen, a sort of passionate feeling, almost a political religion. Tony Jutt, whose parents came from Eastern Europe, remembers his school days, daubed in imperial red, children's books, comics, sporting contests, biscuit tins, canned fruit labels, everything was a reminder of England's pivotal presence at the historical and geographical heart of an international seaborne empire. Can you imagine that mindset by now? in your own head. Look, in order to understand British national identity, you must understand empire. It's a British national imperial identity. And it goes beyond that, Chris. Nation, empire, and monarchy are fused yes. together. It's that sort of triad that encapsulates how Britons imagine themselves. Obviously, I'm making very broad brush statements here. However, to your, your point, it was everywhere, from board games to school books to marketing to you name it. There is not a single royal occasion that is not an imperial occasion. The power of the monarchy is very much invested in empire from the time that Queen Victoria is announced as Empress of India in 1877. And Disraeli, Prime Minister Disraeli, then makes it quite an intentional stroke of genius, if you will, of entwining her monarchy with the empire and the nation, hmm. and the idea of her being the mother of the empire. And if we fast forward ourselves to the current queen's extremely famous speech in 1947 from the Bougainvillea Garden in Cape Town, where she says, I dedicate my life to the imperial family. Fictive familial bonds papering over right. what is in fact the exploitation and extraction of resources from across the world, whilst at the same time projecting this kind of developmentalist mission that they are going to, over mm. the course of centuries, turn black and brown colonial subjects, subjects of Her Majesty the Queen, into modern middle-class citizens. And that was the purpose of what was called the civilizing mission. So all these things, to your original point, are completely entwined to one another. And that's why even today, Chris, Brexit is hitched to the wagon of empire. 2.0, empire 2.0. I can't figure out how the Brexit impulse can live with the imperial impulse. How can we leave Europe? We're ruling the world in their heads. Yes, and I think that this notion, it gets back to this idea 
that the Commonwealth of Nations, 50 plus nations today, most of which were part of the British Empire, that somehow or another, this feeling, this familial feeling of kith and kin is going to enamor them to Britain in a way that Britain can jettison Europe for this kind of, you know, romanticized notion of a post-colonial commonwealth of nations that is going to somehow bind together for the glory of Greater Britain. And even if you look at Queen Elizabeth II, the degree to which she has cultivated commonwealth, she has no legal claim to heading the commonwealth, none whatsoever. Mm. And yet you would never know it. And so this binding together that takes place all the way back in the 19th century, if we project to today and look at these points, the queen projects herself to be the head of the Commonwealth of Nations. Boris Johnson looks at the Commonwealth of Nations as being the bedrock to Britain when it leaves Europe. And well over 50% of Britons still think empire is something to be proud of. So when we think about how it's alive and well and imprecated and what it means to be Britain, not just in terms of national identity, but in terms of political identity and social identity, it is as salient today as it was 50 years ago, at least in some parts of the country. Carolyn Elkins, I mean, the question that screams at you is, how did they get away with it? How did they let themselves get away with it? Where were the dissenters? I've wondered about it through our own more and more imperial identity as Americans, Vietnam and since, how did the British deal with it? Where were the rabble-rousers, the contrarians? And now I can only really think of Orwell, who rose really above the crowd. He had done imperial time as a policeman in Burma and, of course, famously wrote about it. But where were the others? I think it's important to point out, and Orwell is obviously an important figure, but you no, know, not everybody fell into line, <laughs> right? And you certainly have your pacifists, your nonconformers, people from the Independent Labor Party, Fenner Brockway. Later on, we have people like Barbara Castle. And of course, we have those from Empire and others who were from Empire but living in London. You know, George Padmore plays a very big role in my book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. CLR James and others. Amen. But these are black men from the Caribbean. Definitely black men from the Caribbean. But we could still point to, I would certainly point to Fenner Brockway. I would certainly point to folks like Barbara Castle. And the constellation of these, I think what's important to say is, yes, they are the minority. However, as historian, their work without it, I would have a very hard time putting this story back together again. Because their raising of these issues at the time leaves the breadcrumbs for people like me. Of course, long before the 20th century, there was Edmund Burke, parliamentarian from Ireland. He was an imperialist in the sense he loved the worldwide England, but at the same time, he was steadfast in upholding what he called English justice. And he thought it was outrageous that the East India Company had, which we say, uh, was in the business of bleeding India. And he put the head of the East India Company, Warren Hastings, on impeachment trial. Didn't quite make it in Parliament, but he was, a, to this moment, an anti-imperial voice or a voice of justice. And you don't hear many of them. I want to hear more about Barbara Castle. Who was she? She was an extraordinary woman. Member of the Labor Party. She comes from a working class family, and she is relentless in chasing down questions about abuse in the empire. And she becomes most, I think, uh, noteworthy in the case of Kenya during the period of the Mau Mau emergency. It's clear to her that extraordinary acts of violence and torture and murder and cover-up are going on in the detention camps of Kenya, where hundreds of thousands of Kikuyu suspects were being detained without trial. 
she personally goes to Kenya. She brings us to the floor of parliament. She's ultimately, of course, proved correct, but the evidence for that doesn't really come out in any you know, sort of voluminous kind of way until 2006 when I write a book called Imperial Reckoning. She then moves on to Cyprus where she exposes similar kinds of things. And look, here's the bottom line, Chris. Nobody in the Labor Party is going to rock the political boat over empire and torture an empire. And they're certainly not going to go after the British military for this. And when Castle in the 1950s goes after the British military, because they were, in fact, right in it in Cyprus, it pretty much destroys her political career. And at the time, even though this evidence is there, leaders of the Labor Party, like Hugh Gatskill and others, are certainly, as I said, not going to rock the boat. They're worried about the welfare state. They're worried about lots of other things, not about the torture of brown and black people off overseas somewhere else. Can I say that's a fascinating reminder of our own politics. Mm -hmm. They used to say politics stops at the water's edge. We don't debate foreign policy. We don't debate foreign wars, surely. And we did not debate George W. Bush's entry into Iraq. And we don't have much real argument around the Ukraine war today, which has things you could well argue about. But what is that? Is that something in the nature of empire that we all stand together? I think it is the unusual politician, citizen, whatever the case may be, who does not get behind a country's own army or military. They're off bravely sacrificing, I'm sort of giving you the narrative, right? Sacrificing their lives, putting themselves in harm's way for the nation. I think there is always this sense, increasingly so, right, certainly post-World War II, the notion that, you know, unless it affects our country's borders, I think we can think about Vietnam. But look, we've been in Iraq and Afghanistan sending folks over, doing similar kinds of things. And, you know, often enough instances of abuse that were going on over there, Some of them are investigated, some of them are not, but yet these things are recurring. And it's the nature of how these counterinsurgencies are working, and it's also the ways in which international law has been scripted that they're able to, in some ways, get away with this. Yeah. Short form, it takes a real outsider to see the most obvious symptoms. Here's George Padmore, who was from Trinidad, writing in the 30s probably, right? He says... Toward all peoples of whatever race, the British have built up a characteristic attitude of cultivated aloofness. But most Britons, irrespective of social status, display an added aversion to peoples of darker skin. It is this racial egotism and national arrogance which has created a conflict between the British and colored peoples of the empire, which will render a social reconciliation between them extremely difficult even after a political and economic adjustment has been effected. It's something very personal. Yeah, and rather prescient in the 1930s, right? And what he's gesturing to is it wasn't in many ways the straightforward and, and, and I feel not sufficient enough explanation for much of this is that just racist, right? This is racism across the... But it's more than that. It's this idea of, of this paternalism, this developmentalist model that yes. somehow, borrowing from Kipling, the white man's burden, that at some point, you, George Padmore, you, black people from the Caribbean, et cetera, et cetera, one day you will be like us, but just not yet. Hmm. Now, you know what happens, though? That not yet, it never comes. It never happens. Not Mm. yet never comes. And so therein lies his point in part about some of that cultural point, right? 
that you may economically, you may politically, but culturally, you're not yet there. And I think it's something that we see recurring. And, and we can look at the language for the League of Nations, for the United Nations, that literally that phrase, not yet able to stand on their own. Not yet. And right. it's something that I think we need to think about and meditate on if we want to understand how this kind of developmentalism still is a through line all the way down to the present day. Right. By way of the mandates that were given to England and others in the Middle East, for example, but they were to be under British control until they were ready for themselves. To me, the most amazing part is that some of the most famous, monumentally important British writers, John Stuart Mill, for example, put their seal on that attitude. Thomas Macaulay, who had served in India, he described what he'd seen in India as Pacific triumphs of reason over barbarism. That empire, he said, is the imperishable empire of our arts and our morals, our literature, and our laws. And this is a great writer. When they're thinking about empire, it's not about whether empire is going to be, you know, it's a good or a bad thing. They all believe in it. The question is, you know, how is it that they deal with these local populations at a time when you have sort of reformism at home, it's becoming more of a quote-unquote democracy, even though it takes some time in Britain. And they're universally in agreement. Macaulay, John Stuart Mill, others who are further right and authoritarian than they are, that they need to rule despotically. But, here's the but, but it must always conform to rule of law. It must always conform to process. So you can't just be out there willy-nilly governing that good governance is rooted in rule of law. Well, rule of law, but then it could be extended or suspended by martial law, for example. Yes, yes, yes. A big part of this book is to say, okay, so the argument that's always made about the British Empire is that it brought good governance through rule of law. And that's something we will, you know, narratives will always come back to. And I say, well, yes, but no. That in fact, there's rule of law, and I call, it's a term that I call legalized lawlessness. That if in fact there's a security force operation, I'm just sort of giving a, a broad example, that executes some kind of policy or sort of non-policy, bringing violence, bringing torture, whatever the case may be, the authorities would then create a law to allow for it. <laughs> so it was no longer exactly. illegal. And you couldn't right. be prosecuted. And I'm not the first to come up with this, right? I have a certain term for it, so readers who are smart want to kind of get their minds around it quickly. But there's a lot of academic work on sort of the state of exception. Well, if every moment is a state of exception, then it's not so exceptional any longer. It's just the normative. And so, yes, so you have new laws, you have martial law, and you have the really big one in the empire, certainly by uh, Second World War, is um, states of emergency. Because a state of emergency actually gives a government more power, more leniency, more leeway for more draconian action than martial law does. So fascinating. Alongside that rule of law in your book, we have Winston Churchill's almost personally guided hard men around him, secret enforcers of the imperial, you can only call it terror, Henry Tudor was Churchill's man on interrogations. Send him to Ireland. Send him to Palestine. He'll get the job done. There was the incredible Arthur, known as Bomber Harris, who was a very significant figure during World War II. But long before that, in the 20s, air war was brand new. Airplanes were almost brand new. And he was in Iraq discovering the terroristic power of what his planes could do. Here's 
your description, it was probably Obama Harris's own, when he said, this is all new, but those Arab and Kurd natives now know what real bombing means in casualties and in damage. They now know that within 45 minutes, a full-sized village, and he had pictures to go with it, can be practically wiped out, and a third of its inhabitants killed or injured by four or five machines, which offer them no real target, no opportunity for glory as warriors, no effective means of escape. If we think about, in this instance, you know, the way in which empire becomes a testing site for what, of course, is later used in Europe and Germany and elsewhere in the bombing campaigns, and also the sense to step us back and connect a little bit between the two conversations we've been having, that the understanding of violence, coercion, if you will, and reform are two sides of the same coin in many Britain's minds. What I mean by that is that violence was thought to have a quote-unquote moral effect, that violence would in fact hasten along, be part of this developmentalist model, just like child rearing, right, and back in the Victorian days. So when you quote those sorts of things, the other thing to remember is that they're describing these actions as having literally a quote-unquote moral effect. That language is changed come about World War II when it's realized they couldn't, you know, the nomenclature had to be different, and suddenly moral effect became known as rehabilitation, that we're going to rehabilitate these individuals to make us more like us. Your book is Legacy of Violence. One piece of the legacy in a more and more imperial United States, it seems to me, is specifically British people. Tony Blair, who egged on George W. Bush in the war in Iraq, he could have said, you know, we've been there and it didn't work out. Mm -hmm. He didn't say that. Neil Ferguson, prolific writer, absolutely unembarrassed imperialist, wrote a book called Empire, urging us to take up the white man's burden. He said those words in Iraq. But then even the left-winger, Christopher Hitchens, he turned out to love the Iraq war and supported it unto his death. What is this British thing? And how have they muscled us into, into their empire? As an historian, I looked at this and said, and I asked some of these sort of present day or more present day questions and realized that in order to answer them, we have to go back to the sort of the deeper past, 19th and 20th century, and understand what was actually going on? If we're really looking to sort of dispel and sort of completely puncture this myth about a kind of benign imperialism, a successful imperialism, a successful way mm -hmm. of, of leveling the hearts and minds, we're not going to do it by showing one place or one instance. You're going to have to show the entirety. It's like a spider's web <laughs> that you only understand until you step back and take in its enormity. And getting back to folks like Tony Blair and Hitchens and others, well, I'm going to be even-handed in this to say, you know, there's knowing and there's knowing. You know, how much have people bought into the narrative? How much are there books that really present a very solid counter-narrative to this? And I want to point out that I'm not the first one. After Imperial Reckoning, many other historians are working on many other parts of the empire. But it's really an effort with this book to get it into the public consciousness, to really, in a systematic way, say, hey, you want to understand how these guys 
with the Iraq war, we're making these decisions. You need to step back and look at how not only what happened in the empire, but how it was covered up and how people were able to do that on a massive scale. As Orwell says, doublethink is one of the most brilliant phrases ever. And this idea of being able to project an empire that is benign or that is bringing about the civilizing mission, whilst at the same time batting away what are increasingly explosive issues around violence, is an extraordinary, and that only comes from your ability to lie and to gaslight and the rest. And Orwell just pinpoints that in his literature better than anybody I know. Coming up, 50 years later, the court case that told the truth about Kenya's Mau Mau emergency. This is open source. Carolyn Elkins, take up the case of Kenya, which was incredibly cruel well into the 1950s. I remember the Mau Mau time and the publicity, uh, and yet it has this extraordinary resolution in the 21st century, and we want to get to that. It's not exactly a happy ending, but it is a graceful ending. It's a truthful ending that comes to trial, a lot of it with evidence that you have pulled out of the archives. Tell the story of, first, the Mau Mau crisis of the 1950s, and then how we get to the royal court only less than 10 years ago. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Sure. I mean, very briefly, you know, the Mau Mau emergency was one of the states of emergency that we talked about, took place between uh, 1952 and 1960. And nearly the entire Kikuyu population, which was the largest ethnic group in Kenya, took uh, an oath, a pledge to this Mau Mau movement to rid itself of the British from the colony. It's a time of independent struggles all over Africa post-war. It's a time of independent struggles all over Africa. It's an independent struggle, and like all others, it's both an anti-colonial and civil war for the reasons we were talking about before. As a way of suppressing this, there are two elements to the movement. There's one that is a guerrilla war in the Abadera and Mount Kenya forest rangers. And the other are the civilians who took a, an oath to kick all Europeans out of the country. And they had pledged themselves to this. And the British government realized that one of the biggest elements that they had to break was, if you will, the civilian or passive wing support for this movement. And to fast forward us quickly, what they end up doing is they detain nearly the entire Kikuyu population. In detention camps, there's a, a, a labyrinth called the Pipeline, nearly 100 camps in all, modeled around this developmentalist model. Those who were cooperative were rehabilitated. Those who were not were sent back down the pipeline uh, for camps of, with camps of forced labor and increasing severity in terms of punishment. And then most of the women and children were detained in barbed wire villages. These were created specifically for the purpose of keeping them apart from the rest of the population. And the book demonstrates how extraordinary acts of systematic torture and murder took place, forced labor, starvation, and then was covered up at the time. Meantime, you have to mention the, the publicity campaign, in effect, that made Mau Mau an amazing term, but a scare word for the whole world. But the violence we, we can see clearly today was the imperialists. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think, look, I mean, I think one of the things to bear in mind is, to your point, that the term Mau Mau is still, you know, it's part of the English language to Mau Mau somebody, right? It's to, a verb. Exactly. It's a verb. And that's to savagely uh, attack them. And Mau Mau is portrayed as the most savage, horrible, bestial, atavistic movement that the British Empire had ever seen. It was a war of, of the forces of good versus the forces of, of evil. The colonial secretary said when he wrote about it in his diary, he would literally see the horns of the devil projecting itself, the shadow of it onto the page. I mean, that's how seriously these folks took this and uh, that kind of trope. 
And so, therefore, it's an extraordinary extreme case of how you dehumanize your enemy in order to rationalize your response in this movement. And so at the end of the day, what eventually brings Kenya down to link our conversation before, Barbara Castle comes in. The detainees had created these networks to smuggle letters out of the detention camps, and some of them reach London and Castle, and she comes and begins to investigate. And what's clear is that the scale is worse than she even imagined. She goes back to Parliament. She gets shot down, batted aside by Colonial Secretary Lennox Boyd. Eventually, there is an incident in Hola detention camp where 11 detainees are, are killed, are massacred, and that becomes public. And it was immediately thereafter that Kenya moves towards independence. And so my story with Imperial Reckoning ends with that, but it's really the first book that chronicles the nature of the systematic violence as well as the cover-up. And it then, in 2009, becomes the basis for the first time the British government has ever been sued by a former colonized population. And it went forward first with five claimants as a test case. It was Lee Day who was the leading, you know, one of the leading human rights firms in, in frankly, in the world, but uh, they're based in London that took the case on, and I was brought on as expert witness. And the evidence in the book was used for much of the evidence, at least in the initial part of the case. And ultimately, at the time, nobody thought we were going to be successful. Ultimately, the case is successful. In 2013, the British government, after two strikeout hearings or sort of hearings, uh, motions for summary judgment that took place over the course of this uh, this four-year period, decides to settle the, the case, and it was brought to a larger class action, about 5,000 uh, former victims of the British colonial violence in these camps were part of the settlement of about 20 million pounds sterling, an official apology, and a British-funded memorial to the victims of torture and colonial violence in Nairobi. And it was really an extraordinary moment because it's, it's the first time that this kind of thing has happened. 50 years later. 50 years later. And the strange coincidence that the man who'd been in charge of the mission but left because he couldn't tolerate anymore in the 50s, his son or grandson was the ambassador to Kenya today. Yes, at the time of, at the time of the settlement, he was high commissioner of Kenya, and it was quite something. There was... Um, there was a man named Arthur Young who had been brought in to try to clean up a, the, the, the police force. And he left about a year later because he was unsuccessful in doing this. And this uh, high commissioner was his grandson. And he was high commissioner, as I said, at the time. And, and there were many sort of confluences of this. And, but, you know, I think the other thing to point out too, Chris, particularly as we're getting near the, the Queen's Platinum Jubilee, you know, she's on the throne at the time, and, and the two, um, you know, two of the men who were right in the middle of this whole massacre, who, they were known to be in the middle of it, receive order, you know, what, they're, what are called gongs at the time, order of the British Empire. They're given awards by the Queen for their efforts uh, with Britain. And so getting back to our initial part of the conversation, the degrees to which the you know, for lack of better terms, the fairy dust from the monarchy keeps the idea alive that you can even turn war criminals into national heroes with a medal from the queen. Carolyn, for me, the most touching moment in your book is the little speech that one of the plaintiffs from Kenya, 50 years after the event, says this, if I could speak to the queen, I would say that Britain did many good things in Kenya, but that they also did many bad things. The settlers took our land, they killed our people, and they burnt down our houses. In the years before independence, people were beaten, their land was stolen, women were raped, men were castrated, and their children were killed. 
I do not hold her personally responsible, but I would like the wrongs which were done to me and other Kenyans to be recognized by the British government so that I can die in peace. No, it's quite extraordinary, huh? You know, and I think the... Well, I'll say. You know, I think in some ways, again, it ties us back to earlier in the conversation. He's appealing. When I was there, I was there for the, the various points of the trial, and the claimants, the only person they wanted to see was the queen. And they believed it was the queen to, who, it was the queen to whom they were appealing to for justice. And if you think about the, if you will, the internalization of this sort of British idea of a familial trope, right, they saw her as sort of this mother figurehead that they were going to appeal to for justice. And getting back to sort of why and how is it that empire and nation and monarchy are still bound together? What is the role and responsibility today of the monarchy when we think about reparation, when we think about atoning for the past, when we think about setting things straight. There are many individuals along the way, and I like this claimant, I'm not holding the queen personally responsible, but there are many things that we need to be thinking about, about in the British context that have to come together in order to recognize these legacies of violence. Who were the actors involved? Why did they perpetuate themselves? Why are they still accepted today? So that we can imagine a different tomorrow and a different future where the world isn't looking to these models as ones that were quote-unquote successful, but instead understand that they were complicated, they were pernicious in many ways. Yes, they brought reform in some ways, but they brought draconian violence and certainly not the rule of law as we think of it to various parts of the world. Carolyn Elkins, I wonder what kind of moral reckoning can English people imagine looking ahead? And Kenyans, for that matter. But also, is it too late to, to caution Americans about what we do in the world? Yeah, I mean, it's never too late. And I think the, you know, at the end of the day, and this is just one historian speaking, but at the end of the day, a reckoning, whether it's a moral reckoning, an historical reckoning, it has to happen. It has to happen. We've been reeling off for the last hour, Chris, examples of events that were, have either been misunderstood, covered up, or well-trodden like Amrits are, and yet nothing changed afterward. And so the question becomes, and we could be pointing, that we could be looking at our own country here in the United States. We can look at, at, at other places. But let's, if, we're staying, if we're staying on here, I, don't, I want to be clear about that. But if we're staying on here with Britain and the British Empire, then you have to be willing, much like the Germans did after World War II, you have to be willing to turn a spotlight on this and with an unvarnished look understand what happened, why and how and why it happened, and then have the national conversation around that and get rid of this conversation about was empire a good or bad thing because that gets you absolutely nowhere. Well, we've got to have the conversation, but it's global too. I mean, there are two things we haven't mentioned. The burning of Cork City in Ireland in 1922, the IRA had scored on the black and tans or the British occupiers, and the British taught them a lesson. They burned the city down. It reminds you, the pictures in your book remind you of nothing so much as Mariupol uh, under the Russian bombardment today. I mean, sort of merciless. We'll kill the bastards. We'll, we'll, we'll wipe out their city. And they do. Something's still in our blood out there. Yeah, you know, I think there's a question about the nature of war and warfare. That's one thing. And then the nature of what is it that societies have done in their 
efforts to colonize other societies and how have they justified that. We see Putin having one set of rhetoric today. We saw the British having another. And I think those are other things that we have to understand. Of course, the German Empire at the time under Nazi rule had another one. And so I think it's also understand, important to understand the ideology, some of which intersects, some of which does not. But imposing will upon other populations without having any consent um, never ends well. <laughs> that we certainly know. After World War II, the great W.E.B. Du Bois fumed in the arrangements that were setting up the United Nations. He said, we have conquered Germany, but not their ideas. We still believe in white supremacy, keeping Negroes in their place, and lying about democracy when we mean imperial control of, at that point, 750 millions of human beings in colonies. Yep. And I think the, and look, you know, it goes back to the counter discourse we were talking about before. It's not as though colonized populations just laid down on, you know, subpine bodies um, taking this. But the, again, whether it's Du Bois or Padmore or James, or, or in fact, down to letter writers from detention camps in Kenya, at the time it may have felt that they weren't moving the dial a whole lot. But for an historian today to have the kind of conversations we need to have, their work was essential in leaving us evidence. Essential. Little did we know, but you discovered it, that the Brits had kept millions of records of what they were doing. And they were all hidden in, I think you said, Hanslope Park in a kind of warehouse that almost everybody had forgotten. Yeah, and this comes to light, in fact, in the context of the Mau Mau case in the High Court of London, which was about partway through the British government announces, you know, um, you know, surprise, we have uh, hidden in Hanslope Park uh, about, um, you know, we have... Uh, several hundred boxes of files related to Kenya that were packed up and spirited away at the time of decolonization. We have 8,000 other files from 36 other colonies similarly packed up and hidden away. And what these files showed us, and of course, had it not been for the power of the court behind us asking for document disclosure, we never would have gotten those files. And this really did change the course of our understanding in particular around how the British government was so systematic about destroying documents and hide, hiding others. And when I say destroying documents in Kenya, based on the files that were received from Hanslow Park, we can safely estimate there was about three and a half tons of files destroyed in Kenya before Britain decolonized. Entire departments gone. Police department, gone. Records on the detainees, very thin and few and far between. So these become very difficult historical excavation exercises. And so when I say, and I really mean sort of building on work of others, as historians, we have to be working together on this because the project is just too big for any one of us. Right. So many people working on this kind of stuff now, but not all in agreement. I wish you'd spell out what you mean by, you keep referring to our contemporary imperial history wars among the scholars. What's that all about? Yeah, you know, I mean, first of all, scholars like to argue about just about anything, but imperial history wars are, are quite salient in Britain today. It's not just the academy. It's how 
what I do as a historian and other historians, and we debate, you know, there has been this debate, which I find not terribly useful. Was empire a good or bad thing? And you have left-wing historians and right-wing historians, but it has also now spilled over very much so in the public arena, such that in particularly in the aftermath of, of George Floyd's murder and the backdraft of Black Lives Matter and the recrudescence really of demands for the toppling and removals of statues that had begun long before the rise of, of Black Lives Matter post-George Floyd, that is salient in Britain today. So we have, you know, statues being knocked down, others demanding Cecil Rhodes' statue must fall, the spray painting out of Churchill's name at the base of his oversized statue outside of Parliament, and over his name is, you know, it was spray painted, was a racist, you know. And so these imperial history wars, right, at the same time that Boris Johnson is saying empire was a good thing and we're about to to, to leave Europe and, uh, and have Brexit based upon a new empire 2.0. So in some ways, this dissonance, it's almost hard to believe you're talking about the same empire. And so these are the history, imperial history wars into which this book was written. I see. We're hooked on the history wars by now, and we're hooked by your book, Carolyn Elkins, called Legacy of Violence, A History of the British Empire. I, I, I read it in a fever, all 700 pages, and it's a most <laughs> admirable uh, career of work you've done. Carolyn Elkins, thank you so much for wonderful conversation as well as a wonderful book. Well, thank you so much for also just a fantastic conversation and, and to all your listeners who, um, you know, thank you for your time because it's important. I think that has a, a subject that has great importance for us all um, in the here and now. Got to be done. Got to be done. Absolutely. Thank you, sir. Carolyn Elkins, professor of history at Harvard, won the Pulitzer Prize in 2006 for her book, Imperial Reckoning, the untold story of Britain's gulag in Kenya. Legacy of Violence is her global sequel. You've just heard another installment of In Search of Monsters, our limited series collaboration with the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft, inspired by John Quincy Adams's admonition that America goes not abroad in search of monsters to destroy. We're exploring empire across history, looking for a better way forward. For more on the Quincy Institute, visit their site at quincyinst.org and check out their online magazine, responsiblestatecraft.org, where you'll find articles like The Return of Empire in International Politics by Gareth Smith and Helena Cobbins' Another American First, A Self-Collapsing Empire. Find it all at responsiblestatecraft.org. Open Source is a proud member of Hub and Spoke, a nonprofit collective of some of the best podcasts out there. This week, check out Soonish, a show about technology, culture, and the future from journalist Wade Rausch. This spring, Wade stumbled on a test of strength in Albuquerque between the city's historical commission and a rising generation of New Mexico artists. Wade puzzles it out at soonishpodcast.org. And don't forget to check out the whole Hub and Spoke lineup at hubspokeaudio.org. Our show this week was produced by Mary McGrath and Adam Coleman with engineering help from the WBUR production team. I'm Christopher Leiden. Join us next time. Join us every time for Open Source. Open Source.